Welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast about the latest news and research from Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Guy Collander. In this programme, we cast our minds back 100 years to life in London during the Great War. Professor Jerry White, a London historian based at Birkbeck, has written about this transformative period in his new book called Zeppelin Nights, London in the First World War. He is here to tell us about the drama of enemy bombing, but also some of the positive social changes catalysed by war. Jerry White, thank you for speaking to us about your latest work. It's a pleasure. Let's begin at the beginning with the outbreak of war, which you describe very, very vividly. How did Londoners react to Britain declaring war on Germany on the 4th of August 1914? I think there was a sea change in public opinion uh, seen on the streets of London from August the 2nd when it became clear that Germany was going to invade France through Belgium. It, It demanded a passage through Belgium and breached Belgian neutrality. Um, on the morning of 4 August, Germany having already invaded Belgium, the British gave an ultimatum to uh, stop the invasion and withdrawal, which Germany ignored. The ultimatum expired at 11pm on the night of 4 August. And by that point, crowds were jubilant in anticipating going to war with Germany. Uh, There was very little anti-war feeling. Even among people who had been pacifists, many saw the justice of Britain going to war against Germany at that point because Germany had invaded Belgium. And uh, that sort of bullying of European nations was unacceptable and, you know, Britons generally felt this to be a just war. And how was London involved in the war effort? Well, it was involved at every level. Here, after all, was uh, the centre of Britain's strategic war effort. Here was Parliament and the court. It was um, home to the War Office, uh, the Treasury. All the great offices of state were based here. And it was also the imperial capital, so that the war effort in Gallipoli and Mesopotamia was also directed from London. Then again, it was the transport hub of the country, so that troops from every theatre of war passed through London by railway um, to get to uh, disembarkation points on the south coast and so on. London was the centre of the the Empire's medical expertise, so that wounded soldiers were brought to London, not just from the Western Front, but from Gallipoli and Mesopotamia. And London in 1914 was the great armaments manufacturing centre of the country. Virtually all armaments were manufactured at Woolwich and at uh, Waltham Abbey and at Enfield. And that... um, effort of London in making the machinery of war, the the materiel of war, the machinery of death, if you like, expanded during the First World War. Munitions were made all over the country, but London was still a major munitions manufacturing centre for uh, the whole of the war effort. And for the first time in in its history, 
London was subjected to aerial bombardment during the Great War. What happened? Uh, the first bombing of London took place on the 31st of May 1915, so what, some nine months after the war had opened. And bombing continued rather haphazardly, 20 or so raids between then and uh, March 1918. And uh, the Zeppelins, which were eventually vulnerable from the middle of 1916 to uh, aircraft attack with explosive bullets and tracer bullets and so on, um, were pulled out of the attack on London and they were replaced by giant biplanes, mainly the Gotha bomber, which was an effective weapon of war and caused, you know, some real casualties. Bombing in London killed 668 people and injured about 2,000 across all of these raids. And although that was nothing compared to, you know, what happened in London in the Second World War, 28,000 dead in the Blitz and all the, the various bombing campaigns, it was still an almighty shock to the system to have, you know, to be, as it were, on the front line. And how else did the realities of the front line manifest themselves on the streets of London? Well, I suppose um, two main ways, really through the railway stations, which became so close to the theatre of war on the Western Front. Uh, daily, they were, their business was turned over to the business of, of war shipping soldiers out and shipping wounded soldiers back. And secondly, the hospitals, which uh, the major hospitals of London were turned over, you know, very much to, to war casualties. But in addition, large numbers of military hospitals were established um, in places like Camberwell and Chelsea and all over South London. Uh, for ordinary troops, and then in the West End of London, large London mansions were turned over as os as officers' hospitals, um, and so that you know the wounded soldier ambulances on the streets, wounded soldiers in their blues, going into the parks and into the garden squares of London, which were opened up for them uh, from about 1917. The wounded becomes became such a major presence on the street, as well as men in khaki. And how was London transformed by the war? London went through an unprecedented economic boom. Uh, the demands of war brought everyone into the war effort. Uh, everyone was employed. The workhouses emptied, the prisons emptied. Men were employed everywhere or, or went off to fight. And the long-term effect of that was that the dreadful Victorian poverty that had been such a stain on London life for so long, well into the Edwardian period and beyond, right up to 1914, uh, became a thing of the past. And uh, the return, there was no return to those Victorian levels of poverty. As part of all that economic boom, a huge industrial area was founded in West London in a way that had not been there before. There had been some major engineering factories, motor works, engine factories and so on before the war. But the First World War transformed more or less derelict parts or um, you know, empty fields in suburban West London and turned them over to enormous factories. So that Park Royal has its origin in the First World War. Um, Perryvale, Hayes, Harlington, all these 
outer London district became uh, the key munitions district of the west of the western part of London. And as part of that too, West London became associated in particular with the aeroplane, both aeroplane manufacture and airfields and the RFC's headquarters at Hendon and so on. And so you've got these enormous shifts in the economic balance of power from east to west, which is a creation very much of the First World War. And what about the social impact of the war? Women became involved in the war effort in a way that was hadn't, hadn't been the case before. Yeah, definitely so. Really, as this requirement for labour became um, insatiable, women joined the labour market in their droves, particularly from the summer of 1915 in terms of the manufacture of munitions. But then they appear on the buses and in the railway stations... Um, Maida Vale Tube Station, which is a new station opened in 1915, becomes solely staffed by women operatives. There are women postal workers delivering letters. There are women fitting gas meters in South London and stoking gas retorts. Almost anything that men had done before, women took over. And that was a consequence which we live with today as well. Well, we do. You can argue that you know, these things would have happened. We, we know that women were arguing for a greater place in public life before 1914 as part of their arguing for the vote and so on. And it's quite possible that, that um, the franchise given to women in 1918 and then fully in 1928 would have, would have come about sometime after in any event. But the war accelerated everything. It, it accelerated the demise of Victorian poverty. It accelerated the place of women in British society and their value. And it accelerated the, the, the manufacturing capacity of London in a way that had, uh, again, not been seen before. And to that extent, it is a transformative moment and we are living with the consequences still. But aside from that, for some, life continued as usual and even flourished. There was frivolous entertainment, licentious behaviour on the stage and the screen. Could you tell us more about that aspect of London life? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to, to recognise that despite the gloom of the war and the terrible anxiety that hung as a pall over many people's lives, um, entertainment still flourished. Everybody needed, as it were, to come out of themselves and, you know, to get fun somewhere. Um, and so the West End Theatre District flourished. The theatres were full after a bit of a shock from the winter of 1914-15. But then um, great stage shows, particularly variety, musical theatre, uh, rather than sort of serious, you know, Shakespeare and so on. Uh, and so you've got you know, a passion for dancing girls and bright colour on the stage. You've got a, a passion too for rather risque jokes. And above all, you've got a passion for music. That this is, um, as we still remember, an intensely musical war. Um, and so that some of the great you know, sort of songs which were sung by the men in the trenches or in the music halls and so on, they're still with us. 
um, and one of the great numbers which came out of a, a show at the Alhambra in Leicester Square called The Bing Boys Are Here um, is still a great favourite if you were the only girl in the world. I mean, it's, you know, most people know the tune and some people know some of the words. And that's, that originated in 1916 and is, you know, sort of still going strong. And you refer to countless official records and personal accounts of the war in your book. Is there any particular account that you found especially memorable? Well, well, there are some. There are lots of um, published accounts which are quite familiar, I suppose, to those who know the period by, you know, Winston Churchill, David Lloyd George, and Vera Britton in particular. One of the most moving autobiographies, surely, of you know the twentieth century, Vera, Vera Britton's Testament of Youth. Um, but I found, you know, some of the sort of little-known diaries buried away in the Imperial War Museum very moving, or in Senate House, where there's the diary of a, a social psychologist called Caroline Plain, a pacifist living in Hampstead, who charts the mood on the streets and in the tubes of London. Um, or the diary of a Captain Roland Pelly, who's had his jaw shot in Gallipoli, he can't speak, his tongue is torn, he's lost some of his teeth. He can't swallow when he gets into hospital in, in London, but he writes in his diary about a little fling he has with a nurse who is, you know, older than he is, and he worries about how far he should go with her, and so on. Uh, and so that these, you know, insights into people's lives—it's a great diary-keeping era. As soon as war becomes, you know, apparent, and especially when it becomes apparent that Britain is going to join in the everybody reaches for their diaries. There's a diary of a city merchant called Frederick Robinson that ends on Armistice Day at page 3,300. I mean, it's a most extraordinary sort of venture that people are pouring out so much of their inner life into these uh, accounts of themselves in the war. And I've tried to, you know, resurrect some of those and bring them into the public eye again. And much of that colour, those vivid descriptions, they really come through in your book. Good, thank you. And lastly, in the run-up to the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of war, there is much disagreement about the First World War. Should it be seen as senseless slaughter? Should it be seen as a just war? Historians, politicians are all coming into the fray to discuss this. How do you think the war should be remembered? Well, I suppose, you know, I grew up... Um, I went to grammar school in the 1960s and grew up with Wilfred Owen and the war poets and um, I remember being tremendously moved by Oh What a Lovely War and I must say I suppose that you know that sense of a waste of life and effort um, you know hung, hung with me for many years I have a rather different view now which is that um you know, on the 4th of August 1914, this undoubtedly was a just war. I, I think that there wasn't any practical way in which Britain could have kept itself out. Whether the war needed to go on as long as it did, I think, is a moot point. And one of the debates I'm sure that we'll be having over the next four years is whether there were opportunities to, um, to call a halt... Uh, at various points where it appeared actually that a number of the protagonists, certainly Germany, 
would have been prepared to consider a negotiated peace. Professor Jerry White, thank you very much for sharing your insights and research regarding life in the capital 100 years ago. Thank you very much. For more information about Birkbeck's news, events and courses, please visit www.bbk.ac.uk. Thank you.